0: <clears throat> this is this is the fourth day of this October November twenty twenty three seven day Sashin, and we're going to spend one more day with Maureen Stewart, uh, reading from the book Subtle Sound, the Zen Teachings of Maureen Stewart, edited by Roko Sherry Chayat. And I want to pick up where we left off yesterday. This is uh, from a talk entitled Breathing In, Breathing Out. I'll read that last paragraph from yesterday. All our teachers, Dogen Zenji, Rinzai Zenji, all these wonderful teachers of ours, are all saying the same thing to us. Turn the light on and return to the source where we have always been. How do we do this? We maintain our thunderous silence, letting go of all words and thoughts, all grasping, all rejection, not holding on to any experience, whether wonderful or awful. We let it go. We are here to wake up What we have been from the very beginning. Letting go of all words and thoughts. Last uh, evening, Kanji talked about a Tibetan practice in which we can recognize our predilection, our addiction to our own voice, whether it's speaking out loud or talking in our head. Speaking for myself, it's so addictive, so hard to uh, notice in time, let it go, return to silence. So worthwhile to do changes everything and we cut our attachment even if only a little bit so almost everything we do is gradual the product of repetition faithful faithful practice <clears throat> she says do not compare This day is like no other day. This sashin is like no other sashin. Just become very plain, ordinary, simple. You have nothing to do. Nothing to do. You get out of the way. Shunru Suzuki Roshi said, When you say, I breathe, that I is extra. Same thing. It has nothing to do with you. You get out of the way. When you think you have a practice and you have to do thus and so, what you have is a big impediment. Right away, the mind is set in opposition. Right away, you have duality. Some of you come into the doksan room and say, I want to do better. I want to become more quiet. I want to become more clear. I want to succeed at this. She says, better get rid of that right away. Give it up. Please have no thought of improving your condition, no thought about whether it is good or bad. Yesterday was terrible, this morning was pretty clear, this afternoon is going to be great. No thoughts like these at all, please. Just interest in the mind, in seeing what's there. Not accomplishing something, <clears throat> not teaching a dog tricks. Like the scientist studying ants just wants to know all about them, it's obsessed with them. to get to know our own mind, is the most wonderful thing. And our desire to make progress, let's put some quotes around that, our desire to make progress gums up the works. It's something else. Once we've cut it down to just, just looking into the mind, without any particular goal, without any criteria. We're freed. It's wonderful. There's a burden that's removed, and we feel it. Being normal people will pick that burden back up again and again. But notice it. Notice when you're just doing the practice, everything is fine. Everything flows. You have to surrender to what is, to how things are. We all have bad patches, difficult times. Don't be a whiny child, I don't want this now. Everything is there for us to see. Roshi Kaplow said, it's all grist for the mill. We realize that any condition we can work with, that's the path. Path is how things are. Pema Chodron calls it the lion's roar. Giving up our insistence. The things be the way we think they should be, giving ourselves to the way things are. She says, when you come to see me in the interview room, we do speak together about what your condition is, what is happening, of course, and we work together to try to help you clarify things a little more, usually with some attention to your breathing, your posture, some attitude that can perhaps be turned around. But please, while you are sitting, do not give one thought to this notion of improving your zazen. Just sit. One teacher said, enjoy your practice. She says, if we don't make these distinctions, if we do not get involved in holding on to these ups and downs, but just let them exist, like our in-breaths and out-breaths, then we may have a taste of something. We come to Sashin and we want to clean up our lives. And some of us have ideas about becoming enlightened in a few short days, but in seeking to become one with Buddha, there is separation. We are enlightened from the very beginning. Believe this. We are all enlightened from the very beginning. Have faith in this, and your practice will go all by itself. Have faith in this Buddha mind. To the degree degree that we have that faith, it's so much easier to look What is this Buddha mind? It's with me every minute, every hour of the day and night. Why don't I know it? Why don't I know it more intimately? She says there are many stories about how Zen masters have dealt with this matter. One student came and said to his teacher, I want to become a Buddha. The teacher said, there is no Buddha, breaking this attachment to striving for something for an end. And another student went to his teacher and said, I want to practice to attain the way. The teacher replied, there is no way to be attained by practice. Still another teacher told his (laughs) still another student told his teacher, I want to attain liberation. The teacher said, who is holding you back? And a student who was very full of flowery thoughts, which I hear quite often in my interview room, said, I have heard it said that Shakyamuni Buddha left home, practiced for many years, and attained enlightenment. His teacher replied, Ha! What a pity! If I'd seen that old Buddha, I would have given him a good beating and thrown him to the dogs. These statements are not hurting Buddha or Buddhism. They're not irreverent, not disrespectful. They're made to remove the attachment in the student's mind. A mind free of discrimination is free to practice. Then there is no separation between you and Buddha, no separation between you and liberation. This practice of ours is to be in tune with the natural way so that our true nature can show itself. Just to practice according to the teaching given us by Buddha and not to think about whether we are successful or not, that is our way. <clears throat> can maybe make a comparison between physical training, doing strength training or some sort of physical skill just do the exercise. There's no need to think about whether it's good or bad. If you're doing 20 push-ups, that's what you do. Strength you gain comes naturally, not through your intention. You may have the intention to do the push-ups, well good, but you don't muck them up with thinking, okay, that's two push-ups, how much stronger am I? Someone came to me, she says, and said in disbelief, this is spiritual practice, sitting on a cushion and counting from 1 to 10. Everything is spiritual practice. When you leave the Zendo, you go back to all kinds of life situations. You're not taking anything with you. You're going back with nothing, not a thing. You're going back, however, to respond to whatever your life situation is vividly. This is what our practice is about. Some people are doing koan study. It's not what you say to me in your response, it's how you respond. How do you respond to your life? Don't take anything with you. Then there's just this cleared-up mind that responds to whatever is asked of you. Those of you who are doing this strange spiritual practice of counting your breaths are discovering that it's exceedingly wonderful it is incomparably the best way to take us into the ocean of samadhi, one-pointed concentration, just counting. It's difficult to do, to count from one to ten again and again. To reach a unified, single-minded state, this method has been used for generation after generation after generation. When you begin counting, there are many thoughts. Thoughts come in, and thoughts go out, and eventually the counting takes over, and you're deeply engaged in vast, what? What? And then just naturally counting stops, and you're just watching the breath, breathing the in-breath, breathing the out-breath. Then even that falls off, and you're just purely being. The thought of practicing Zen is gone. The thought of successful practice is gone. Scattered mind is gone. There's just simply one-mindedness, and then no-mindedness. Not seeking or striving or getting, just counting, just breathing, just being, just this. Whatever else we do, and we may very well do all kinds of things besides counting our breaths as our practice goes on, the best way to begin each sitting is just this way. A dynamically still process, a simple, unaffected trust is what occurs. This is something you can do, especially if you find yourself sitting down in a state of distraction. If you're working on a koan, if it's not clear in the mind, You can count the breath for a little bit. I was told that Yasutani Roshi used to do this. She says, last night I was dreaming. It was a very vivid dream. I woke myself up saying, yes, yes, yes. Oh, yes, yes, yes. She says, say yes to it, neither approving nor rejecting whatever it is. Through the intensive practice of Sashin, we can face things more calmly. With our hearts full of strength and energy, we have a new sureness in our lives. We feel lifted out of the ego self that says, I, me, my, I, me, my, all the time. We feel freer to live in wholeness, not some split childish childish self. <clears throat> if you can't if you can't say yes, at least notice that you're saying no. Understand that. And later on you may be able to say yes to whatever it is. Could almost sum Zen practice up, say the practice of saying yes whatever's here, whatever's in front of us, everything as it arises. Maureen says, this is what we mean by compassion. Being really present with everything, giving ourselves up completely is compassion. Doing our work as we are asked to do it cleanly, quietly, inconspicuously is compassion. The two great underpinnings of Buddhism are Karuna and Prajna, compassion and wisdom. Prajna without Karuna is cold. We must be careful that in our Zen practice, in our searching for wisdom, we do not overlook the other side. And compassion without wisdom may result in sentimentality, something that is too soft, too mushy, something that needs more backbone, Traditionally on the altar in Zen temples are two figures on either side of the main image of Buddha or Bodhidharma. One is Samantabhadra, the other is Manjusri. Samantabhadra, the Bodhisattva of compassion is riding on an elephant. Manjusri, the Bodhisattva of wisdom is on a lion. Keeping this balance, of wisdom and compassion in every, is everyone's koan. When is it appropriate to offer, when to hold back? With our ordinary minds, we carry out the subtle action of inaction, returning to whatever our life's work is, getting up in the morning, putting on our clothes, washing our face, going to work, coming back from work, walking downstairs all of these wonderful acts of inaction are all, are all of these are wonderful acts of inaction when we do them freely flowingly not self-consciously when we become self-conscious and are separated from the action we are engaged in we become stiff and unnatural our minds get twisted up when we're just walking, just sitting, just going to work, just washing, it's one treasure, one act. The Bodhisattva Canon, of course the Bodhisattva of compassion, <clears throat> as well as Samadhi Bhadra, the Bodhisattva Canon grows arms and heads in abundance to be able to respond wherever there is a need. This Bodhisattva spirit in each of us bows down in humble gratitude as we become freer more awake and aware of what it means to be a true friend. Nobody is forcing us to do something. We spontaneously do what needs to be done. This one treasure is found within ourselves. This untaught wisdom is found in all the subtle actions of our lives. course, it starts when we say yes. When we let go of self-protection, protecting ourselves, how can we help other people if we're not if we're afraid to open zen is a practice of courage willingness surrender. We have all those qualities. Gradually, gradually, they emerge. People change. We will too. That's the end of that section, and I'm going to go on <clears throat> to a talk that's entitled Our One and Only Commandment. And she says, before the time of Wenung, who lived in China during the Tang dynasty, it had been thought that the experience of enlightenment could only be attained after one had practiced and attained some depth in dhyana, meditation, or absorption course, I think most people know that the word dhyana was translated into Chinese as Chan and then into Japanese as Zen. Zen really is absorption. Um, it's a little quote from Yamada Roshi. Yamada Kohen Roshi, who uh, was the successor to Yasutani and uh, really a co-author of the Three Pillars of Zen. And he used to say, the practice of Zen is forgetting the self in the act of uniting with something. There it is, very simply. Merging. In our practice, there's a lot of different things, ways, that we can find to merge with the breath, with the koan, the question. Just bringing awareness to whatever is, presents itself. Again, she says, it was thought that the experience of enlightenment could only be attained after one had practiced and attained some depth in dhyana. Perhaps some of us still think that. Wei Nung, however, maintained that prajna, transcendental wisdom, is inseparable from dhyana. Neither can be understood without the other. There are three forms of discipline in our practice. The first is shila. Moral precepts against stealing, gossiping, coveting, etc. The second is dhyana or Zen, and the third is prajna. Weenang said, we said, for true understanding, we must know that dhyana is not different from prajna, from prajna, and that prajna is not something attained after practicing Zen. When we, when we are practicing, in this very moment of practicing, Prajna is unfolding itself in every single aspect of our lives, sweeping the floor, washing the dishes, cooking the food, everything we do. This was the very original teaching of Wei Nung, and it marked the beginning of true Zen Buddhism. Everything is teaching us, everything is showing us this wonderful Dharma light. All we have to do is open our eyes, open our hearts, While we are doing, thinking, and feeling, Zen is there. Prajna is there. This intuitive mind infuses everything we do. But this is not something about which we can have discursive knowledge. We cannot attain realization of this in that way. This intuitive knowledge comes from our body and our mind. We don't sit here and think about what enlightenment is. To think I must get enlightened is the greatest impediment. To have some degree of enlightenment is wonderful, to think about it is terrible. No knowing is what we do, as in the famous phrase of Bodhidharma. When the emperor of China asked, who is this who stands before me? Bodhidharma replied, no knowing. In our translation, we say, I don't know. Roshi says the three most famous words, in Zen. You could also say not knowing. There is no way we can take this intuitive mind and quantify it. We can't say, here it is, I'm going to give you one month's worth or two months' worth. Now we've progressed to six months' worth and your course is finished. That's not it. We may see it in an instant, or it may take several lifetimes. This is a practice of endurance and patience. Forgetting all about gaining anything, we are simply trying to see clearly. There's a quote uh, attributed to Jesus, not in the Bible, but from some other source, some other scroll. Jesus said, recognize what is in your sight and that which is hidden from you will become plain. We are simply trying to see clearly. What does this seeing clearly mean? It doesn't mean that you look at something and analyze it, noting all its composite parts, no. When you see clearly, when you look at a flower and really see it, the flower sees you. It's not that the flower has eyes, of course. It's that the flower is no longer just a flower, and you are no longer just you. Flower and you have dissolved into something way beyond what we can even say, but we can experience this. The French philosopher Paul Valéry, died in 1945, said, to see is to forget the name of the things that one sees. so wonderful just to look at a tree, forget everything about it, just see it, let it step forward vividly. Everything is like that. Everything has that quality. It's waiting to shine. This kind of seeing, she says, this kind of understanding is as isn't, as it isness, <clears throat> as it isness. This wonderful intuitive wisdom infuses everything we do if we just open ourselves up to it and forget about all our selfish petty concerns, forgetting about what we want, what we must get, whether this is doing something for us. Forget it. We're here for the sake of all sentient beings, and we are one with all sentient beings when we come to see this as, as it isness. Tongue twister. Meister Eckhart, the 13th century Christian mystic who really understood this said, the eye with which I see God is the same eye with which God sees me. We see all things through the conceptualizing of color and form and yet we do not see them in their true essence because we separate ourselves from what we see. When we think of something as good or bad, it is our own habit of thought. It's because we have so much attachment to this discriminating mind that we do not experience Mu. It even shows in our bodies. We have something blocked somewhere, something that refuses to let go. We're so attached even to pain. This is my pain. Whose pain? When you hear the Han struck, do you feel the pain of the wood? Can you let go of your own pain, give up this imagined individual self, and just dissolve into mu. Each of us is sometimes laughing, sometimes crying, we are endlessly thinking of things. What about paying attention to what it is that makes us feel and think this way? We train our minds by looking into them. We just look in not allowing ourselves to be carried away by our perceptions. We just look into what is going on and ask, where does this come from? We are training ourselves in the practice and study of Buddhism so that our thoughts and emotions do not disturb our true nature mind so that we can sit imperturbably no matter what. True Buddhism embraces the whole universe without a single label. You must have your own experience of the study and practice of Buddhism. Not think thoughts that have been given to you by anybody else, including myself. Forget everything I have said. Depend on yourself. Your own experience of your inner self is what this is all about. See it. Turn in. Through clarifying our minds, we can abandon our delusion and enlighten ourselves. Realizing we are part of the whole universe, not separate, our minds become as clear as crystal and all the Dharma is revealed. Let us see clearly. Let us put all the past aside and go deeply into this moment after moment. How do we do it? just by our own natural breathing. When we inhale, we don't take a great gulp of air, but just a little, just enough. By breathing like this, more air is retained in the lungs, and quite naturally, the breathing slows down. The transition from inhalation to exhalation becomes smoother. Sitting becomes joyful. It is an immeasurable pleasure just to breathe in Zazen. It's a really significant transition in breath practice, to move from control to enjoyment, in and out, like a gate swinging. So much gets released, so much tension in the body as we do this. She says, just to breathe, just to see clearly, this is the real meaning of the precepts. To keep the precepts does not mean following a set of rules. It is giving ourselves to a way of life, a path of compassionate action that expresses itself in everything we do. Roshi is fond of saying that the precepts are simply a description of the action of an enlightened being, of a Buddha. She says, Our practice of Zazen purifies and warms the mind so that the precepts are not really necessary. <clears throat> However, we have to have certain rules of behavior, of course. We get up in the morning, we wash, we dress mindfully, we straighten our cushions, we pay attention to our posture and our breath. Zen practice itself is a precept, one of them, and at the same time, all of them. Dhyana is prajna. Prajna. Everything is contained in what we are doing. This is our zazen and this is our everyday life, every minute. So the power of this practice we are engaged in helps us keep the precepts without self-consciously trying to follow a set of rules. If we try to do it, if we think about it, if we read the list of precepts every morning and say, now I mustn't do this and I mustn't do that, it doesn't work. still would recommend, one, take a look at the precepts. You may notice an area where you need improvement. But I take her point, which our, our enlightened behavior comes spontaneously, not rigidly. She says, if it comes from the hara, from the intuitive wisdom mind, then it can be done. We can control ourselves very well when we are without any idea of controlling at all. There's nothing to do, there's nothing to control, nothing to follow. Without trying to do something, we simply practice in the same way as when we are hungry, we eat. When we are tired, we rest. The precepts are not some rigid formulation outside ourselves. There are a few Buddhist sects in which very strict precepts are observed. Some Buddhist monks could not come here because I am a woman. They could not come near a woman, let alone shake hands with her. I respect them, and they should not violate their commandments. If they find some deep meaning in them, that's fine. But in our practice, our one and only commandment is the intuitive response to our lives. And if we pay absolute attention to this, it's really difficult to violate. Things work out. Things shift and change. If we're committed, it's mysterious how things can work for us. We really step in with both feet. We don't have one foot out the door in the back hall ready to leave. I think some of you have heard before. It's a from a man named William Hutchison Murray. He says, Until one is committed, there is hesitancy, the chance to draw back, always ineffectiveness. Concerning all acts of initiative and creation, there is one elementary truth, the ignorance of which kills countless ideas and splendid plans. That the moment one definitely commits oneself, then providence moves too. All sorts of things occur to help one that would never otherwise have occurred. A whole stream of events, issues from the decision, raising in one's favor all manner of unforeseen incidents and meetings and material assistance, which no man could have dreamt would have come his way. I have a deep respect, learned a deep respect for one of Goethe's couplets. Whatever you can do, or dream you can, begin it. Boldness has genius, power, and magic in it. Think of the commitment that Roshi Kaplow made when he went to Japan. Everything opened up from that strong, strong commitment. All right, time is up. We'll stop and recite the four vows.